In the weeks that followed Peterloo, public reaction was one of shock and mistrust of the authorities, the Manchester magistrates in particular. Protest meetings were held across the country. Lord Liverpool and his government held firm against the protests, imprisoning those who demanded an inquiry rather than acceding to the demand. But the narrative that was ultimately handed down to history was one of the bloody dispersal of a peaceable meeting by a repressive government that refused to countenance reform. That we acknowledge this narrative today rather than that of the authorities has much to do with the journalists who witnessed the massacre and their editors. The conclusion to Harriet Martineau's account reflects the mood of the middle classes in the weeks following the massacre. The Manchester massacre, as it came very generally to be designated, was at once felt on all hands to have made an epoch in the history of the contest with radicalism. A new scene of that drama had commenced. Other feelings were called up, and a change was to come over the course of action on both sides. The Manchester magistrates themselves were probably as much astonished as anybody at what they had done. Many other radical meetings had been held in all parts of the country, but nothing had happened at any of them like what had taken place here. The dispersion of a popular meeting by armed force, on the ground solely of its being formidable from its numbers, might be a legal proceeding, but similar circumstances had again and again occurred of late, without its having been adopted. Why should not this meeting have been allowed to be held without being so interfered with, as well as any of those that had preceded it? Could not the public safety have been as effectually preserved now, as on so many former occasions, merely by the necessary preparations being made for repressing any outbreak on the part of the people, if such should be attempted? Or, if the arrest of Hunt and his associates was necessary or expedient, could that object not have been effected in another way? If it would have been too hazardous for Nadine, the peace officer, to have attempted to apprehend them during the meeting, as Harrison had been apprehended a few weeks before, without difficulty, at Smithfield, might they not have been easily seized at any time, either before the meeting or after it? These and other such questions could not fail to suggest themselves. But, above all, they must have been conscious. For it is undeniable, and is, indeed, as good as confessed, that, after all their two days' deliberation, they had allowed the morning of the day of meeting to come upon them without being prepared with any determined plan of action. Their notion of being guided by circumstances was manifestly nothing more than a vague hope that something might happen to deliver them, in some way or other, from their indecision and perplexity, and compel them, as it were, to take some particular course. Accordingly, we see them standing aloof and doing nothing as long as they can. They neither attempt to prevent the meeting taking place, nor to arrest the popular leaders on their way to it. Then, one favourable opportunity having thus been let slip after another, they clutch as if in desperation at what seems their last chance of doing anything. It is determined that the forty Manchester yeomen shall attempt to walk their horses up to the hustings, through the densely packed and all but impenetrable multitude, whose closing around each, and separating him from his comrades, as soon as he had moved a few yards forward, was inevitable. 
this was not to be guided by circumstances but to be driven on by the impulse of trepidation or passion all that followed was the result of the failure of this attempt which could not but fail it is clear that the order to the hussars to clear the ground was the thought of the instant up to that moment no such proceeding had been contemplated or dreamt of the people were not allowed to assemble in order that they might be swept off the ground by a charge of cavalry the dispersion and bloodshed were not premeditated they were the convulsive effort of the authorities to extricate themselves from a danger real or imaginary into which a previous false step had precipitated them perhaps a sounder judgment might have seen that the yeomanry after they had entered the crowd were not in so much peril as they appeared to be in to mr holton but however this may have been the grand mistake had been committed in placing them in that position that this was a blunder was demonstrated by what immediately ensued was acknowledged by the magistrates themselves in the very next order they issued nor was the failure one the blame of which was to be laid upon circumstances having turned out otherwise than might have been expected the experiment was much the same as if the forty yeomen had been ordered to advance through the water upon a vessel lying a quarter of a mile out at sea it was an experiment which could not succeed in any circumstances on the other hand however wanting in discretion they may have shown themselves however grievous an error in judgment they may have committed it does not appear that the manchester magistrates can be made out to have done anything absolutely illegal on this occasion they were of course justified on the sworn informations they had received in issuing their warrant for the arrest of hunt and his associates the warrant could be legally executed at the time when the attempt to execute it was made and any resistance or supposed resistance to the officer entrusted with it might be legally put down by any available force which appeared to be necessary for that purpose this was no doubt the view of the case which determined the government under the advice of the law officers to notify immediately their sanction of what had been done the statement which lord sidmouth afterwards made in parliament was that the account of what had taken place at manchester reached ministers on tuesday night that on wednesday one of the magistrates accompanied by another gentleman arrived in town to give the government the fullest information on all the circumstances that a cabinet council was immediately summoned at which the attorney and solicitor-general were present that the two gentlemen from manchester gave minute details of everything and that the law officers then gave it as their opinion that the conduct of the magistrates was completely justified by the necessity under which they acted it appears that the first thing the home secretary did upon this was to write to the prince regent the reply of his royal highness was dispatched by sir benjamin bloomfield on the nineteenth from the royal george yacht off christchurch it conveyed the regent's approbation and high commendation of the conduct of the magistrates and civil authorities at manchester as well as of the officers and troops both regular and yeomanry cavalry whose firmness and effectual support of the civil power preserved the peace of the town on that most critical occasion lord sidmouth then on the twenty first addressed letters to the earls of derby and stamford 
the lord's lieutenant of lancashire and cheshire intimating that he had been commanded by the prince regent to request that their lordships would express to the magistrates of the two counties who were present at manchester on the sixteenth the great satisfaction derived by his royal highness from their prompt decisive and efficient measures for the preservation of the public tranquillity lord sidmouth's defence of the course he thus took is stated as follows by his biographer lord sidmouth was aware that this proceeding would subject him to the charge of precipitation but he was acting upon what he considered an essential principle of government namely to acquire the confidence of the magistracy especially in critical times by showing a readiness to support them in all honest reasonable and well-intended acts without inquiring too minutely whether they might have performed their duty a little better or a little worse so impressed was his lordship with the importance of this principle that he constantly declared in after-life that had the question recurred he should again have pursued a course the policy of which was not less obvious than its justice if indeed the government had left those magistrates exposed to the storm of popular indignation until the verdict against hunt and his associates in the succeeding year had demonstrated the legality of their conduct the magistracy at large must from the dread of abandonment have failed in duty towards that royal authority which either could not or would not stand by them in the hour of peril and thus in all probability the most calamitous consequences would have ensued the legality of the conduct of the manchester magistrates was not one of the questions at issue on hunt's trial nor of course was it either demonstrated or noticed in any way whatever in the verdict on that occasion it would appear however that although the home secretary had the concurrence of his colleagues in the step which he took they were not unanimous in adopting the view upon which he acted mr twiss has published a remarkable letter of lord eldon's to his brother sir william scott without date but evidently written about this time in which his lordship says without all doubt the manchester magistrates must be supported but they are very generally blamed here for my part i think if the assembly was only an unlawful assembly that task will be difficult enough in sound reasoning if the meeting was an overt act of treason their justification is complete eldon who goes on to say that he was clearly of opinion that the meeting was an overt act of treason and that the previous birmingham meeting was the same his argument being as he afterwards stated it in the house of lords that numbers constituted force and force terror and terror illegality pressed for having the prisoners indicted for treason but was as we have seen overruled it was it seems on the twenty-fifth that lord sidmouth informed the regent that the evidence against hunt and his associates did not afford sufficient ground for proceeding against them for high treason but that it fully warranted a prosecution for a treasonable conspiracy which would be instituted immediately in order that the bill of indictment might be presented to the grand jury at the ensuing summer assizes for the county of lancaster this was done accordingly and true bills were found against hunt and nine others meanwhile the utmost excitement had been produced by the proceedings at manchester all over the country on the twenty-second immediately on reading the newspaper account 
Sir Francis Burdett addressed a public letter to the electors of Westminster, denouncing the conduct of the magistrates in the most unmeasured terms. For this the Attorney-General immediately proceeded against him by an ex officio information for libel. Meetings, at which strong resolutions against both the magistrates and the government were passed, were held in all parts of the kingdom. An address in this spirit, presented to the Regent in the beginning of September, from the Common Council of the City of London, drew from His Royal Highness a reply, in which he told its authors that he received their address with deep regret, and that they appeared to know little or nothing either of the circumstances which preceded the late meeting at Manchester, or of those which attended it. This, however, did not prevent addresses to the same effect, some more, some less, strongly expressed, being sent in from Westminster, Norwich, York, Bristol, Liverpool, Nottingham, and many other towns. Of the county meetings, the most remarkable was that of the county of York, which was held on the 14th of October, and at which 20,000 persons were supposed to have been present. Among those who signed the requisition to the High Sheriff was Earl Fitzwilliam, and his lordship was also present at the meeting, for which acts, as they were considered, of open opposition to the government, he was immediately dismissed from his office of Lord Lieutenant of the West Riding. Before this, the Duke of Hamilton, Lord Lieutenant of the County of Lanark, had sent a subscription of fifty pounds to the Committee for the Relief of the Manchester Sufferers, accompanied by a letter in which he expressed the alarm that had been excited in his mind by the manner in which the meeting of the 16th of August had been interrupted. There were not, however, wanting some addresses and declarations on the other side from the smaller towns and counties, and a few associations for raising troops of yeomanry in aid of the civil power were formed in Scotland and in the north of England. The grand jury of the county of Lancaster also threw out a number of bills presented to them against individuals belonging to the Manchester yeomanry, for cutting and maiming with intent to kill in St. Peter's Field, and the proceedings of an inquest which sat for nine days at Oldham, on the body of one of the persons killed at the meeting, after having been characterised by every species of irregularity and confusion, were at last quashed by the court of King's Bench. On the whole, the disposition of the classes possessed of property still was generally to rally round and support the government, even although the more reflecting among them might not see reason to approve of everything that had been done in the contest with the democratical party. The opinion of one class of the ministerial adherents may be considered to be expressed in a passage of one of Mr. Ward's letters, written from Paris in the beginning of October. What do reasonable people think of the Manchester business? I am inclined to suspect that the magistrates were in too great a hurry, and that their loyal zeal, and the Nova Gloria in Armis, tempted the yeomanry to too liberal a use of the sabre, in short, that their conduct has given some colour of reason to the complaints and anger of the Jacobins. The approbation of government was probably given as the supposed price of support from the Tories in that part of the country. Mrs. Isabella Banks concludes her account with the new mood that she detected in the satirical broadsheets that were posted around Manchester. Another token of the change in public sentiment was shown in the satires and pasquinades 
which appeared on the walls or were distributed from hand to hand. Previously to Peter Lou, a set of anonymous verses in ridicule of the popular leader had been distributed. They began and were headed as follows. Orator Hunt 1. Blythe Harry Hunt was an orator bold, talked away bravely and blunt, and Rome in her glory and Athens of old, with all the loud talkers of whom we are told, couldn't match Orator Hunt. 2. Blythe Harry Hunt was a sightly man, something twixt giant and runt. His paunch was a large one, his visage was one, and to hear his long speeches vast multitudes ran, O oh, rare Orator Hunt. 6. Orator Hunt was the man for a riot, bully in language and front, and thought when a nation had troubles to sigh at, t'was quite unbecoming to sit cool and quiet. Oh, rare Orator Hunt! 8. How Orator Hunt's many speeches will close, tedious, bombastic and blunt, in a halter or diadem, God only knows, the sequel might well an arch-conjurer pose, Oh, rare orator hunt. Sufficient has been given to show the nature of the lampoon without repeating its scurrility. The following, of which we only quote the first two stanzas, is of pretty much the same order, though emanating from the other side, and after terrible provocation had been given. The renowned achievements of Peterloo on the glorious 16th of August, 1819, by Sir Hugo Burlo Furioso di Mulo Spinissimo, Bart, M.Y.C. and A.S.S. The music by the celebrated Dr. Horse Food, to be had at the Cat and Bagpipes, St. Mary's Gate, Manchester. Recitative. When fell seditions stalking through the land, it then behooves each patriotic band of noble-minded yeoman cavaliers to sally forth and rush upon the mob, and execute the magisterial job of cutting off the ragamuffin's ears. Aria bravura, forte. How valiantly we met that crew of infants, men and women too, upon the plain of Peterloo, and gloriously did hack and hew the damned reforming gang. Our swords were sharp, you may suppose. Some lost their ears, some lost a nose. Our horses trod upon their toes, ere they could run to escape our blows. With shouts the welkin rang. Andante so keen were we to rout these swine, whole shoals of constables in line, we galloped o'er in style so fine, by orders of the sapient nine. First friends, then foes laid flat, by Richardson's best grinding skill, our blades were set with right good will, that we these rogues might bleed or kill, and give them of reform their fill, and what do you think of that? And so on the satire ran, in mock bravura style, through the whole course of piano, sotto voce, pianissimamento, and con bal danza, with footnotes to strengthen or elucidate the text, and that the writer remained undiscovered and unprosecuted, spoke loudly for the reaction which had taken place in men's minds. Archibald Prentice had arrived in Manchester from Lanarkshire in Scotland in 1815. 
Like John Edward Taylor, he was a businessman who sympathised with the reformist cause, but was not an organiser of the meeting at St Peter's Field. He joined Taylor in dispatching reports to London immediately after the meeting, and published his recollections in 1851 in his Historical Sketches and Personal Recollections of Manchester. Prentices is one of the few detailed eyewitness records of the aftermath of the Peterloo Massacre. Taylor's protest against the resolutions of the Star Inn meeting on the 19th of August received 4,800 signatures in a matter of days, including, Prentice writes, a considerable portion of persons who in ordinary parlance would be spoken of as belonging to the respectable classes. By way of counteracting the effect of this energetic protest, on the 27th of August, Lord Sidmouth communicated to the Manchester magistrates and to Major Trafford and the military serving under him the thanks of the Prince Regent for their prompt, decisive and efficient measures for the preservation of the public peace on the 16th instant. This haste to thank the delinquents greatly added to the exacerbation of the public mind. On September 2nd, a large meeting was held in Westminster, at which Sir Francis Burdett presided, and a remonstrance to the regent was adopted, calling on him to order the prosecution of the Manchester magistrates by the law officers of the Crown. Meetings were also held in the City of London, at Glasgow, York, Bristol, Liverpool, Norwich, Nottingham, and other large towns to address the regent on the same subject. Some petitioned for inquiry, others passed a strong censure on the Manchester authorities and the ministers who had advised the royal letter of thanks. It was as the breaking up of a great frost. The middle classes had appeared as if they were bound up in the icy chains of indifference to the demands of their humble fellow countrymen for their fair share of representation. But the sudden outburst showed that whatever opinions they might hold as to how far the elective franchise might safely be extended, they were not disposed quietly to witness death inflicted on men whose only crime had been that they asked for universal suffrage, vote by ballot, annual parliaments and the repeal of the Corn Law. Meanwhile, hundreds of persons wounded upon that fatal 16th of August were enduring dreadful sufferings. They were disabled from work, not daring to apply for parish relief, not even daring to ask for surgical aid, lest, in the arbitrary spirit of the time, their acknowledgement that they had received their wounds on St Peter's Field might send them to prison, perhaps to the scaffold. A subscription was entered into for their relief. A careful and rigid inquiry was made for many successive weeks. The committee meeting in my warehouse, then in Church Street, and thus we arrived at an approximation to the extent of death and calamity inflicted. Meanwhile, the eleven prisoners who had been detained at or following the meeting at St Peter's Field were brought to the New Bailey on August the 27th for a hearing that would determine the charges to be brought against them. As it had been known that on the 27th of that month the determination of the government regarding the charges against the prisoners would be declared, a great crowd had collected in front of the new Bailey prison, and when the doors were opened the courthouse was instantly filled. The only magistrates present were Mr Norris, Chairman, Mr W Halton, Mr Ralph Wright, Mr William Marriott, Mr T W Marriott and the Reverend W C Ethelston. The names of the prisoners were called over, and answered in the following order. 
Henry Hunt, Joseph Johnson, John Thacker Saxton, John Knight, James Morehouse, Samuel Bamford, Joseph Healy, George Swift, Thomas Jones, Robert Wilde and Elizabeth Gaunt. Elizabeth Gaunt answered to her name, but feebly, being unable to speak out from a tendency to faint in consequence of being cut and trampled upon in the field, and having been twelve days imprisoned. The chairman then addressed the prisoners. When you were last called up into this court, you were remanded on a charge of high treason. On remanding you, you were informed that the whole of the evidence had been sent up to London to be laid before the law officers of the Crown, and in the meantime you were to be detained. It was not until this morning that a communication was made from government, stating that the law officers of the Crown had for the present abandoned the higher charge. This communication was not made to me, but there is a gentleman present, Mr. Bouchier, who has come with orders to proceed upon a less charge. The charge of high treason is not yet abandoned, but the government proceeds against you for a minor offence. The first witness called proved the purchase of two copies of the Manchester Observer, one of them containing the announcement of the meeting for the 9th of August. Who urged you to purchase the papers? asked Hunt. The court would not allow the question to be answered. Hunt again asked, You purchased the second paper on the 14th of August? The court would not allow the witness to answer. Matthew Cooper, the next witness, was designated simply of Manchester. Hunt asked for his address. The court would not allow the question to be answered. Mr. Hunt, of what profession are you? Witness, I am an accountant. Hunt, is that your only profession? Chairman, don't answer that question. Cooper swore to having seen certain flags and colours, one of them with a bloody dagger, the court would not allow Hunt to cross-examine him. Richard Owen, a pawnbroker, was then examined and swore to his own alarm and his belief that the town was alarmed. Hunt asked him when it had occurred to him to note down what he had deposed to. The witness refused to answer the question, and the court decided that he was not bound to answer. Other witnesses deposed to having seen the male prisoners on the hustings. The evidence against Elizabeth Gaunt being only that she had been seen on the carriage with Hunt. The solicitor for the Crown said he would not press for her prosecution, and she was discharged. Mr Hunt then addressed the court, denying that any sedition was intended, and arguing that there was no evidence against them to justify a committal for trial. The magistrates left the court for some time, and on their return the chairman said, Henry Hunt and you all, we sent for Mr. Bouchier in order that we might again carefully peruse the depositions. It is a most painful duty to me to commit you for a conspiracy. We can, however, lay our hands on our hearts and say, we have done our duty. As to the charge of conspiracy, though you might not have acted altogether previous to the meeting, yet in the eye of the law all those who commit separate acts tending to one illegal object are guilty of that crime. Coupling the two meetings together, taking into consideration the manner in which the last was assembled, with such insignia and in such a manner, with the black flag, the bloody dagger with equal representation or death, you came in a threatening manner, you came under the banners of death, 
thereby showing you meant to overturn the government. There could be no free discussion where that flag was unfurled. The charge now is that of having conspired to alter the law by force and threats, it is an illegal matter, and sufficiently made out and calls upon us imperatively to commit you for a trial by a proper jury. It is now our painful duty to commit you to Lancaster Castle. On account of the seriousness of the charge, we shall require you, Henry Hunt and Joseph Johnson, to give bail yourselves in one thousand and two sureties in five hundred pounds each, and all the others themselves in five hundred pounds and two sureties in two hundred and fifty pounds each. Johnson and Moorhouse procured bail and were liberated. The other prisoners were sent off in hot haste to Lancaster Castle. The arrest and detention of Elizabeth Gaunt, it should be noted, was a matter of mistaken identity, although this was not acknowledged at the hearing. Having been placed in Hunt's barouche after fainting close to the hustings, she was mistaken for Mary Files, president of the Manchester Female Reformers, who had arrived in the barouche. Elizabeth Gaunt was carrying an unborn child at the time of her arrest and detention in solitary confinement. She later lost the child as a result of her injuries and treatment in jail. On the 4th of September, John Lees of Oldham, a weaver and Waterloo veteran who had suffered horrendous wounds at St Peter's Field, died of his injuries. For the reformers, the inquest on his death was an opportunity to bring the perpetrators of the Peterloo Massacre to account. One object of the public subscription was to obtain a decision as to the legal character of the proceedings on the 16th of August. A man named John Lees had died in consequence of sabre cuts and other injuries received that day, and an inquest on his body was opened at Oldham on the 25th of September. Much delay occurred in the commencement of this inquiry by the absence of the coroner, Mr. Ferrand, from his duty, and the refusal of others to act in his stead, and it was afterwards prolonged to an extent unexampled, partly by the number of witnesses brought forward, and partly by the frequent adjournments, ultimately from Oldham to Manchester, which the coroner interposed. It was the aim of the solicitor, Mr. Harmer, afterwards alderman of the City of London, who conducted the examination on the part of the next of Ken, of the deceased, to prove the peaceful character of the meeting, and the unwarrantable nature of the military attack. On the other side, efforts were made to show that previous acts of violence on the part of the multitude, and the reading of the Riot Act, had justified the attack and exonerated from legal criminality those connected with it. Ferrand, the coroner, not having seen the body of the deceased, Mr. Harmer, on the 2nd of October, suggested the necessity of his complying with the law in that respect, and inquired if he had seen the body, to which Ferrand replied, I shall give no answer, and, refusing to give any further information on the subject, proceeded afterwards to examine evidence for two entire days, and then, on the middle of the night of Tuesday, the 6th of October, he caused the body to be taken up, without giving any notice to the jury or the relations of the deceased. After the coroner had seen the body, it was again interred, and he continued the irregular investigation until the 13th of October, when, without any reason assigned, he adjourned the inquest to the 1st of December. 
It would require very great charity to believe that this adjournment was not made in order that government might in the meantime decide how the matter should be disposed of. The court of King's Bench was applied to for the purpose of compelling him by mandamus to resume and close the inquiry. The coroner showed cause against the mandamus, and the court declined interfering on the ground that he had committed an irregularity by which the proceedings might be considered as invalid. The coroner, by omitting to observe the law, had placed himself above the law. If the irregularity had been designed, it could not better have served the purposes of the government. Mr. Harmer, in an affidavit intended to form the ground of the other proceedings, which, however, were not taken, says that on the said first day of December he attended at the Star Inn, Manchester, the place appointed by the said Mr. Ferrand for the jury to meet in and resume their inquiry. But the said Mr. Ferrand did not attend, and this deponent saith that his deputy, Mr. Batty, who was there in his stead, dismissed the jury by telling them that the inquest was at an end, and their services were no longer required. And this deponent further saith that when the said Mr. Ferrand adjourned the inquest, as before mentioned, there were several witnesses in attendance to give evidence respecting the cause of the death of the said John Lees, but the coroner refused altogether to take the examination of the said witnesses. It had been the boast of Englishmen that the sudden and violent death of the most obscure and wretched individual could not be passed over without the strictest investigation of all the circumstances attending such death. In those days it was the privilege of the most obscure and wretched coroner to render the law inoperative. So God bless Henry Hunt, me boys, with Henry Hunt we'll go. We'll mount the cap of liberty in spite of Nady Joe.